MakeReel specializes in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereel.co.uk slash activists. People have been learning in virtual reality for quite a while now, so we probably think we've got a handle on what it's all about. Great for simulating stuff like flying a plane or training in dangerous environments. But just hold on a minute there. What if learning in VR turned out to be really at its best for doing something you never even thought of? Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Hellman. Now, guess what? Learning is cool. Learning is cool. Learning is cool. I'm learning. Learning is fun. Knowledge is power. Knowledge. Education. We covered virtual reality and the metaverse in a recent episode of our sister podcast, Great Minds on Learning, that was, to be honest, pretty philosophical, epistemological, metaphysical, abstract. But this discussion, by contrast, is relentlessly practical. We're going to be looking at a particular learning program on soft skills and a scientific experiment that was set up alongside it to measure and analyse the results. And to do this, we have not one, but two guests. Kate Fitzgerald, Head of Fact. Who are they? Fact Facts. Sophie Costin is Director of Learning at the virtual reality company Make Real, where she works with clients to diagnose their business challenges and create innovative learning solutions that deliver real impact. She's also worked at Brightwave and Kineo and was a guest on The Learning Hack in Season 2, talking about extreme learning design. She's joined by Linda Joy Jerry, a psychology and human-computer interaction researcher from New Zealand. Her work investigates empathic skills enhancement and compassion cultivation facilitated by emerging media technologies, specifically virtual reality, VR, augmented reality, AR, and biofeedback. So, Jay Curtis had a themes. What came out of our discussion? For years now, people have been telling L&D off for not evaluating their training programmes. But here's a very innovative learning programme that was not only evaluated, but evaluated by a proper scientific researcher. In fact, the whole thing was set up as an experiment to test some particular capabilities of VR. That's pretty significant, John. And then when you look at how the VR was being used to switch viewpoints in an interview, well, that's really quite something as well. If you thought you knew what learning in VR was all about, then you really need to listen to this episode because the field is evolving and changing in quite unexpected ways. We've got used to the idea that VR can help us explore other worlds, but what we're learning is that its greatest power might just be in its ability to take us inside other people's heads. And the implications of that for learning are quietly mind-blowing. O wat some poor the gifty geas to see our seals as ithers see us. It might not be immediately obvious what these famous and perhaps rather overused lines by Scotland's national poet Rabbi Burns, spoken in an admittedly execrable Scottish accent, sorry folks for that, have to do with virtual reality, but all will become clear very soon, I promise. First of all, I have to do this. Sophie and Linda, welcome to The Learning Hack. 
Hi. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> it's great to have you here. In the latest season of our sister podcast, Great Minds on Learning, we cover the theory behind virtual reality in the metaverse. Uh, and we'll be looking at uh, more of that stuff later with um, a, a session on extended mind coming up. Um, but that was the theory. For this podcast, we're returning to that theme, but in a very different way. We're looking at a specific project that comprises two distinct parts, a learning program and an experiment. Sophie, first of all, can you uh, set the scene for us, explain a bit more about the, these two, the linked program and experiment, and where the idea came from to set it all up in this way? Yeah, definitely. So firstly, a bit about the um, program itself, project itself. It's a, a course called Here to Listen, and uh, it's something that Make Real created in collaboration with Lloyd's Banking Group. Um, so there was loads going on at Lloyd's Banking Group in terms of uh, mental health conversations. That's something that they're sort of very passionate about. Um, and there was various sort of bits of training uh, going on there already. Um, and they were also already really good at doing research themselves. So they'd sort of done various focus groups and found that they had this group of mental health advocates who had been really well trained on what they should be doing if they identify someone who is sort of struggling with their mental health. Um, so they really knew the theory, but they were overwhelmingly reporting that even though they knew what they should be doing, they really didn't feel ready to do it. They didn't feel ready to have these kind of difficult conversations um, about mental health and how other people were, were potentially struggling. And this was back in, in 2020 when it was a really important topic. It had become an even more important topic for, for a lot of businesses. Um, so that's when they came to, to make real. Um, with this brief of people have knowledge, but they don't feel prepared. They don't have preparedness. Um, so they were asking for a digital solution um, that was going to help people feel more confident, more able to have difficult conversations about mental health, um, which is... a a really exciting brief to receive, a really important brief to receive, but it's also a really tall order. Um, you know, how do you really deliver on that? Um, and I was sort of thinking of the kind of traditional, maybe digital learning solutions, a lot of branching dialogues and that kind of thing out there. And, and that just didn't feel like it was actually going to move people to that state of preparedness that they needed. Um, so I started looking around and thinking where people had sort of evidenced in the past that they'd managed to do this with a, a digital solution. And what sprung to mind was a research study by University College London, UCL, um, from a few years ago, where they had taken people into a virtual reality experience. Um, and they had split the participants in two. Half of them were embodied in this, mental, uh, in this virtual reality experience where they were confronted by a child in distress. And this group could speak aloud and they could say anything. And then eventually the child stopped crying. And then in the second part of this experiment, they were re-embodied as the child. And suddenly everything they'd said in the first part was sort of reflected back to them and they could hear themselves. And what the researchers found that as a result of this experience, um, the participants became more compassionate and less self-critical. And not because anyone had sat them down and told them how to be how to better express compassion how to be less self-critical it was just that powerful perspective taking that ability to see yourself through another's eyes where they realized what was landing what wasn't and how they're actually coming across and I just thought that that's what we need that's that's what's gonna make the difference here um so we created this course called here to listen um which was based on on this kind of technique uh, it's essentially a simulation of a, a video call 
Um, so your um, camera on your laptop, your uh, microphone is being accessed and you're being drawn into a conversation with a pre-recorded actor. Well, you can speak aloud, you can say anything. And then once you've done that, you watch yourself back and you self-rate uh, self and self-attest. Um, and it felt like something really interesting was going on here when we started playing with this technology, when we started testing it out. And this kind of thing of perspective taking is quite well researched in virtual reality, but on desktop, mm-hmm. maybe a bit less so. Um, so that's where the idea for the study came from. Okay, so that, that's interesting because the ex- it, the experiment comes first, the UCL one. Mm-hmm. You saw that that inspired you to do the learning program. Um, then, but how does the ex- the experiment that sits alongside this come into the picture as well? Was that there at the beginning of the setup, or did it? Um, come in later as an idea? It was always there in spirit, I think, um, because the, the concept did come from did come from academic research and it very much came from trying to work out how we could harness some of the power of um, virtual reality for learning onto a desktop medium. Um, and there's a lot of things that are very well researched in virtual reality that just aren't so well researched on desktop. So we kind of started on this firm academic base that this should be effective. There's no reason why this wouldn't be effective. And sure enough, we tried it out and it felt like it was effective. But it was also quite tantalising how that research had never been done, that piece had never been done. And there's always the kind of intrigue as well as are people just enjoying watching themselves back? You know, are we all like budgery guards looking in the mirror? We're just sort of, you know, really focused and fixated and actually what we've got is people's concentration but is that actually changing their behavior Mm. and so it sort of raised all these question marks that were in need of research from the very beginning but it wasn't until um yeah it wasn't until the course was built and it was there and we were receiving all this positive feedback you know there really was this kind of this wave it felt like something was different here and it was Mm. just too tantalizing to not know more basically yeah. take a slight step back yeah why was the reason why you decided to to do this on laptop and not on headset yeah so it was 2020 basically <laughs> we were all locked away so all this right. is with um lloyd's banking group who do actually do a lot in the virtual reality space that's mm. how make real first sort of built our relationship with them um and they do a lot of training on virtual reality interestingly the initial brief was that this should be short-term desktop, long-term virtual reality. Okay. Um, the, the kind of assumption was that you couldn't have this kind of powerful learning. You couldn't have this level of practice just on desktop. It would have to do. It would have to do while everyone's locked in their houses away from their headsets. Um, and the, the long-term goal was always to do this as a conversion onto virtual reality. But actually what we found was the solution was so powerful and so effective, there's currently no plans to, to convert this. Uh, wouldn't it it'd be quite interesting to do a, a comparison study? <laughs> the, well, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, a control yeah. group on the, the the laptop and control group and the other group in in the headsets. <laughs> you set up the program for us, Sophie. Um, we should bring Linda in at this point. Um, Linda, maybe you can describe how you got involved, uh, uh, how you know sort of Sophie and Make Real, and. Describe the experiment for us. Yeah, definitely. Um, I had been in touch with McReel for um, several months before we set up this experiment. And they were very interested in 
bringing me on board as an academic researcher to conduct empirical research. Um, we've called this efficacy research, which is unfortunately seldom done in consumer commercial facing products. And I think it's really important to have the level of rigor and depth of I guess you would say more traditional academic experimentation in academic psychology um, brought to fully assess and evaluate the training effects of these kinds of applications. Hmm. Were there any kind of problems, drawbacks that came with uh, working alongside a kind of commercial organization like Make Real? I mean, obviously they're not kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're a friendly bunch of people, easy to work with, but working in that context of something which is being delivered for a client, did that, that provide particular kind of parameters? Or? No. Um, I think the, the biggest difficulty was translating the language of, um, you know, sort of academic writing and statistics and p-values yeah. and different types of statistical tests into a very simple communication style that would be more comprehensible to a business savvy um, audience. I think that was one of the biggest challenges possibly of the project, but there were people from Make Reels team who collaborated with me on that aspect of it. Yeah. Um, so that was really fantastic. Okay. Um, I, I think the only other thing is that, you know, I was emanating a study that was done through the methodology was um, stemming from a study through Stanford University's Empathy at Scale Virtual Reality Project. Okay. And so that's like a team of six people who had done that study so yeah it's just me as one person as a researcher um was yeah. was a lot but i learned a lot <laughs> so yeah yeah and this is an existing field of study people are looking into the way that virtual reality can be used for this this type of empathetic Absolutely. Absolutely. This is what I focused on for my master's research. And it's what I'm doing now for my PhD research is virtual reality for empathy and compassion, cultivation and training. Okay. And were you involved in setting up the actual kind of design of the program at all? Or were you just taking the data outputs as it were? I was not involved with the design that was entirely make real and Sophie. Yeah, presumably because they're very good at what they do there weren't any compromises and the way it was set up as a learning program and absolutely i have commended many times and will confidently continue to do so that the sophie and make reels team did an extraordinary job being up to date with what is being observed in the academic community in their design of this application. Um, what Sophie mentioned earlier about perspective taking um, has been shown to be one of the most important and influential factors to utilize in interventions that are enhancing cognitive, emotional empathy and proactive helping behavior. So yeah, they I was really impressed with what they were doing and really honored to be a part of it. <laughs> you are too kind. Um, you were also involved in the design of, we had an experimental version, which did have a few tweaks. And obviously we had the control version as well. And we very much took sort of, well, we, I guess we kind of collaborated on, on those to add various extra measures in. And the control version um, was a version of the course that had all that perspective taking taken out. So it was much more like traditional e-learning where you were just choosing options from a screen. 
Um, so that's probably the part where where Linda jumped in. Yeah, I, I should say that um, the learning hack is not an advertising medium, and of course you are a sponsor, but it's a very powerful endorsement to come from science <laughs> to say uh, how good you are at setting this up. But I, I think perhaps we should take that as you know, uh, people often are kind of slightly snarky about um, learning technologies vendors and and how much they really know about the science of learning and stuff they're doing. But folks, this shows that, you know, real science can be done here. So perhaps you should uh, talk about, maybe if we if um, I ask Linda to talk about what the results were from um, an academic point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we had two different groups for this study. Um, there was a group who accessed an identical version of the application, um, but did not have this um, perspective taking exercise where they're able to see themselves from the other person's point of view. In empathy research, we call um, the empathizer and then the target is the person they're empathizing with. Okay. Um, so they were able to see themselves from the target's point of view. Um, and then, sorry, so the non-interactive group had exactly the same experience, but did not have that specific interaction of okay. perspective taking. So and it was more the, like a standard e-learning program. Yeah, exactly. Um, which again, um, for this type of research, the main goal is to sort of contrast novel developments and innovations against sort of the accepted benchmark state of the art. Um, so here the innovation, the core in innovation that we were interested in from a design perspective was this perspective taking situation. So yeah, and we tried to keep everything else as, as um, identical as possible so that that was the isolated variable of interest. And yeah, um, so it was a six week long study um, with a, an initial pretest using the application and then a post-test with three follow-up measures taken every two weeks mm -hmm. over the course of six weeks. And again, I think this is really extraordinary for an experimental design in the field, to be honest, like in the field of virtual reality and empathy, longitudinal studies are rarely conducted. So for a company to invest in this style of research, to really find lasting attitude, behavioral effects was really significant. Um, so the main findings was that both groups had improvements in the variables that we were interested in. So we were looking at cognitive empathy, attitudes, um, positive affirmative attitudes, and how capable a person could be who is experiencing mental health issues, as well as negative stigma and bias against mental health, the reduce, reduction in bias, increase in positive affirmative attitudes. Um, and then we had a number of cleverly designed behavioral metrics that were, again, adapted from that Stanford study I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. that's done by um, Fernanda Herrera and Jeremy Bailson and other people from that team. Um, so the behavioral measures were willingness to volunteer one's free time, which in empathy research is one of the most robust behavioral measures 
to achieve because empathy is notoriously very difficult to measure. Yes, yes, and yeah. having a, so I would say about 80% of the empathy measures that have and compassion measures that have been used to date are questionnaires. Right. Um, so there's out of, I would say, 70 empathy and compassion measures that I am aware of, I think only about seven of those, so 10% are behavioral measures. Yeah. Um, and volunteering one's free time is a really, really strong, it's sort of an altruistic measure, right? You're, you're sacrificing something for yourself yeah. in order to help a cause that you care about. Um, so the way that we had that done in this study is that we invited people in a way that was sent out as a communication that seemed to be separate from the empirical study within the organization um, to invite them to attend a workshop to continue learning more about mental health. And that, for me as a scientist, was one of the most robust and interesting findings from this study was that um, there were different response patterns that people could select. Um, they could mm. not respond at all. They could say maybe, or they could commit to attend and say yes. And the differences between that commitment to attend this event were really significant between the interactive group that had this perspective taking exercise versus the control group that did not. Right. Absolutely clear about that. The way of measuring whether empathy had in, increased was to ask people then if they will volunteer their time for a specific um, for, further action. And between the two groups, those who had the virtual reality program and those who had the straight e-learning program, there was a noticeable difference. Correct. In that, which showed that the empathy had actually increased. How big a difference? Give some numbers. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was almost double, wasn't it? Just it shy, was almost just shy double, of double. To... Yeah, yeah. So definitely statistically significant. Wow. Yes. Yes. Uh, um, it was 70% in the interactive experimental group compared to only 30% in the control group. Okay. Really That's more than double. Yes. In the struggle against the forgetting curve that learning people are engaged in every day, there are no magic formulas, but there is science. For well over a century, psychologists have known that the spacing effect unlocks deep learning and helps learners power through to peak performance. And yet who uses it, despite the fact that modern learning systems like LXPs make it almost easy? I've written a white paper with Learning Pool that shows how you can use the spacing effect to beat the forgetting curve. Download it now. The Learning Hack podcast is supported by Learning News, the learning sector's newswire. Rob and his team are good friends of the podcast, and we really value the help and advice we've had from them, and they do a great job. For the very latest news from around the learning sector, for interviews with learning leaders, the latest from learning sector vendors and features on workplace learning, go to learningnews.com. Oh, what do those results tell us from a scientific point of view about the medium, particularly that we're using here? Did you, would you see that as an endorsement of the power of the medium? Yes. I would say it's an endorsement for what this exercise is allowing people to practice that causes this 
curiosity or um, activism mindset to be much stronger and to have a greater commitment to continue integrating this into their lives. Okay, yeah. I, I mean, that is quite an amazing endorsement. Sophie, as a learning designer, from your perspective, and you're very experienced in designing for, for VR, did the experiment confirm something you already knew or suspected, or was there anything surprising about the results for you? Yeah, definitely. So, as I said earlier, the, the kind of whole thing around perspective taking in, in virtual reality is really well understood. So, it was that piece around, can that be um, translated onto a desktop experience? Hmm. In theory, that was my that was my premise. That was why I put forward this design, right? I I felt that it could. And then when we built it, I really felt that it could, but we still didn't know. <laughs> so, um, the fact that people in the experimental group were twice as likely to sort of uh, give up their their own time to learn more about this cause, even though you know they didn't understand this was part of the experiment, this was just sort of observing them in the wild, as it were. Um, yeah. The the extent to which you know they were twice as likely that that was really surprising, really exciting. You hadn't expected it to be to have, have positive results by such a big margin. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We. It, if you do the experience, you can see it's doing something different to just, you know, selecting options on a screen and you feel like it's getting somewhere close to the perspective taking that, you know, we do in virtual reality quite a lot. Um, but to be able to quantify that in some way mm. feels really interesting and, and really exciting. Um, in terms of other surprises, what was really interesting to us also is that actually in the experimental group, their self-reported confidence went down. So in the non-experimental group, in the control group, they came away feeling very confident in a self-reported fashion. But yeah. actually all the behavior measures show that they were doing less. They weren't actually committing that confidence into any action. Whereas okay. the group that were doing yeah. more were reporting feeling less confident. And that's super interesting as well. And I guess we can kind of theorize about that um, till the cows come home. I kind of like to think that we've got through that new starter bubble that's often um, observed so that when mm -hmm. people um, start something, you know, when they're, they're absolutely nascent, when they're absolutely fresh, they have low confidence levels. When they start it a, a little bit, then their confidence greatly increases. They have this, yeah. this big bubble of confidence that, yeah, no, this is no problem at all. And actually then when they start to get into the weeds, when they really start to understand what what the ask is, then their confidence dips a little bit. Right. So what I think and what I'm hoping is happening here is in this experimental version, in the, the full fat version of the course where you're doing yeah. this perspective taking, we're actually pushing you past that stage where you're just dipping your toe into the water and actually, you know, you're going into a stage where you're you're much more established at having these conversations. And it's when you get to that point that you realise all the things you don't know and you're really like on your learning journey then. Yeah, but perhaps does that give a, a kind of indication that really some behaviour change is happening here? Because, you know, with the, with the straight sort of low-fat version of the, of the learning, people afterwards were, oh, yeah, I'm completely confident in my abilities. You know, I'm empathetic. I'm not, I'm not biased. Turned out not to necessarily be the case. The people who'd had the, the full-fat uh, experimental version actually were a bit unsettled about how empathetic they really were. Am I interpreting that right? Or? Yeah, and, and I don't think it's necessarily how empathetic they are. It, it was that sort of around that readiness, around how confident do you feel having these kinds of, of okay about their own 
confidence in, yeah, to, exactly. to actually do the job. They actually Confid- made them feel in their own ability. Less, yeah. yeah, they actually had less confidence in their own ability as a result of the training. You could take that as a bad thing, but um, you could take that as a bad thing. But then, if you look, they're actually the ones going out there and doing things and changing yes. and you know learning more from that point you know you're almost at the worst point when your confidence levels are really high but your uh, but willingness your performance to is, is really low, low. Yes. yeah exactly um yeah. so it, it looks like it's sort of pushing people past that kind of slightly dangerous um point yeah i, I think that's interesting about this for me is maybe this is a bit of a tangential point but we hear a lot in our industry about empathy it's one of the big abstract nouns that gets thrown up on mm. slides all the time um, to the extent that it's become a bit of an eye roll. You know, people talk, we, we have to kind of make our people more empathetic. Um, and for me, this isn't a question, it's a reflection, really, but I'd be interested in, in your reaction to it. It seems to me that this is actually digging into empathy um, in a very real way and giving us some kind of scientific foundation for talking about it and, and perhaps even improving it. So this is an exciting um point for me because my research now is focusing a lot on the distinction between empathy versus compassion. And one of the measures that we used in this study was um, an empathy distress, empathic distress versus um, empathic concern questionnaire. And that questionnaire has six words that are, um, sorry, you know, it has eight words, four of which are positive empathy responses and four of which are negative empathy uh, emotions. So the negative are distress, overwhelm, burden, um, things like that. And the positive are tenderness, concern, um, gentleness, these sorts of warmth. Um, And what we found was that the participants in both groups had uh, slightly decreases in the negative emotions um, after the first conversation versus after the second. Um, and, but that difference, that decrease um, was a lot stronger um, for the experimental group. And that's really, really important for me um, because I think that learning how to process an empathic response and, ha- and hold space for the overwhelm and vicarious suffering and distress aspects. Um, in compassion research, one of the core competencies that is often focused on with compassion interventions is specifically distress tolerance, um, the ability to have equanimity and to sit with discomfort with oneself, but it's not often discussed in the context of social emotions like empathy and compassion. Yeah, it, it feels like you're drilling deeply into the reality of an emotional response rather than, as I say, flashing it up on a PowerPoint. And I think that's that's really interesting and really interesting for for, for the, 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 the part of the forest we work of, work in. <laughs> to, in, in business, which, you know, really is the kind of learning industry. It's something that I think people really need to hear. I've read a few scientific papers, not thousands, but enough to know that quite a lot of the men by saying, we think this shows us such and such, but really we need more data. We need to do some further experiments and give some more funding, please. Linda, what implications do you think this work has for future lines of research? 
Yeah, I definitely think that doing a version of this study comparing this desktop-based version with a virtual reality perspective uh, taking version would be really powerful as a potential next step. Um, There are more um, measures that I have come upon in my own research and I sort of think back on this project and I think, oh, that would have been a really cool measure to use. Um, I think that we we did include a lot of different types of measures, um, you know, cognitive, affective, and behavioral measures for empathy and compassion. Um, and I think that the study is really strong in that regard. Um, but I guess getting to like, well, what is it? then about this interaction? What is it about perspective taking that's really going on um, that allows for these differences? Um, Really getting into the nuances of that a little bit more would be really interesting for future future research. Um, And yeah, From a kind of folk science, um, you know, folk biology um, kind of perspective, you think of it, it it seems to support something we feel innately. You know, there are sayings like walk a mile in my shoes and that sort of thing. You know, if you just see things from other people's perspective, you'd understand a bit better. Um, And of course, the Robbie Burns um, quote, which I hope now makes sense to people. you, You see things from other people's point of view. I mean, almost literally, that in a way puts you inside their minds that is the way to, to, to change your attitudes. Um, and it, it now feels that, that you're working very closely in an area here where we put some science around that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that there could possibly be a little bit more design around um, not just seeing yourself from someone else's point of view, but really getting into what that experience is like for that person specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so using sort of elements that help the user to really be curious about and to ask questions about what this experience is like for this person, I think could be really valuable for future research. research. <laughs> And, and almost another aspect of it is is seeing yourself reflected back to you. You know, I, I have to watch myself when I edit these things and I'd hate it. But um, you, you do learn something from that, I suppose. To, Just to pick up on that, that's a really yeah. common thing that, that people say is like, I hated it, but, you know, like, there's a lot of, I found it really uncomfortable, but, and I, th- I think, that, that was always a really important part of the design as well is is getting the right emotional context you know when um i'm also a line manager and you know there's been and, and i'm also a human being and i've had difficult conversations in the past where people come to you with something that feels really important that they're telling you and you really want to do the best you can for them and i think you do often get quite rooted in your own head and your own thoughts of you know how am i going to respond actually just being able to put yourself to one side and and just listen is definitely comes with practice and Mm. this definitely seems to be a tool that allows you to practice that and at first that's really uncomfortable but that's correct because in real life those kind of conversations are really uncomfortable and we can't take that bit away (laughs) you kind of you have to go through it and and that's where the the power and that's where the learning is coming from 
So from your perspective, Sophie, let, let's stay with that. What future plans do you feel you would have or future ideas? What does this inspire you to want to do, to do further, to go on to do next? So, so many future plans for this. I mean, that, that's kind of partly why we we did engage Linda on this because it really did feel like something was happening there. And and obviously, you know, we've spoken about virtual reality and, and that's really well understood. Sometimes the scalability of that for people is a barrier. There's much lower barriers to scalability in this. Um, so it, it felt like something important, something, you know, potentially powerful that we could use in lots of different ways. And and so the plan is to use it in lots of different ways. So I think it'd be really good for all kinds of difficult conversations. And obviously mm. a lot of those go on at work every single day in terms of you know, negotiation, um, in terms of giving and receiving feedback, you know, so, so sort of taking it out of the mental health world and, and looking at um, different types of topics, you know, that ability to practice, that ability to really see yourself just allows you to improve in in all areas of the self sort of um work and other really um so there's lots of different plans to sort of flex it to to help people in in all different avenues of of their professional and, and personal lives i think hmm. i think the other thing that's interesting to me that i'd really like to play around with is you know this was very much a, a conversation with one person which for the topic was absolutely right but i spend a good portion of my day on zoom calls on team calls i think we all do now and you've got this little mm-hmm. panel of faces um so being able to play around with other people's perspectives you know seeing yourself from other people's perspectives and really playing with that perspective you know what if you see yourself back and actually you can't really hear yourself because you've got kids screaming in the background or you've mm. got an internal monologue that's just so busy and so distracted with other things you see how unimportant you are to that person and how does that feel um, so there's something in that space that I'd really like to play around with. Uh, if, it, if anyone wants to collaborate with us on that one, I'd I'd really appreciate it. Yes, and and presumably you are open to further collaborations with um, academics such as Linda and perhaps Linda herself on this kind of work. Yeah, absolutely, and and of course clients as well to you know get this stuff live and in the wild because that's you know that is what's um, sort of driving all of this. There, there yeah. needs to be some end users, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's the main thing, isn't it? Sort of, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, are we really changing behaviour if we're not actually getting this out to people and changing behaviour? You know, you can kind of theorise about it all you want, but actually the important yeah. thing is to get this in front of people and actually make a difference. So where can people go to find out more about the project? Yeah, well, if you visit the Make Real website, um, I'm sure we can maybe share a, a link afterwards, yep. Um, yep. John, as well. So, any yep. links you send me, um, I can put into the show notes, and and, and links to uh, papers that have been mentioned during the discussion would be helpful as well. So we have the full academic paper that that Linda has um, written up, so you can sort of go and check our working out and uh, yeah. you know really get into the weeds of it. We also have a little sort of one pager with with the headlines and you know the sort of main findings. That's uh, uh, maybe a bit of a lighter read, but yeah, both options are available, and um, we'll make sure they're in the show notes. But you can also find them on the Make Real website. Marvellous. Uh, you're not supposed to say this about your own podcast, but I think it's been an absolutely cracking episode. <laughs> and it, really interesting. Um, and thank you so much for kind of bearing with the difficulties of uh, coordinating the time zones uh, and so on. Um, and well, just thanks to both of you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. 
Thank you for having me. That's all on the Learning Hack podcast for this time. Many thanks to our guest and to all our sponsors. The Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship. If you want to help others find us, please like, follow, rate, review and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. Stay curious, learning people. Now I finally get it.